Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. Ponder this for a little bit. If 60% of gun deaths are suicide and 85% of gun homicides are street gang related, we have two very, very narrow areas of policy that we could look at that would address 91% of all gun deaths in the country. That was the voice of Guy Smith. He's the author of a book called Guns and Control, a nonpartisan guide to understanding mass public shootings, gun accidents, crime, public carry, suicides, defensive use, and more. And you check the show notes for a link on how to order his book. Guy also runs an incredible website called gunfacts.info. And we are going to talk about all his experience in getting the accurate information out there about the so-called gun debate right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here, and I'm asking you to offer some support for a project that I've been running for nearly six years. It's called Helping Homeless Women NYC. And as the name implies, I've been getting out there on the streets for, like I said, nearly six years to offer direct relief to some of the most vulnerable yet fiercest women you'll ever want to meet. If you check the show notes, you will find a direct link for how to donate at GoFundMe. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon patron or in ordering uh, restaurant gift cards directly from my wish list, shoot me an email and I'll send you that information. But I'm just requesting some support, thanking you in advance and asking you no matter what to please share the link far and wide. Now, let's get back to the show. And I'm here with Guy Smith. Guy, welcome to Post Woke. Hey, Mickey, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for doing this. We did it kind of on short notice, and I appreciate you making time. And I've already mentioned your book and your website, but I do want to share something that's from your website to give listeners an idea of sort of your mission statement, in which you say, gunfacts.info lists common gun myths, both pro and anti-gun, then lists a number of documented and cited facts from high-quality independent sources, including government databases, peer-reviewed studies, and more. Thus, when a neighbor, pundit, or politician repeats some soundbite about gun policy, you can quickly find that myth and then rebuke it with accurate information. Now, I want to dig in and hear what what, what you've discovered, but I want to start with this question. In all the time you've been doing this, is there a singular accurate gun fact that seems to surprise people the most? Uh, there's uh, probably several dozen of them. Uh, I wow. tell you the one that's uh, probably getting the most adverse reaction. Uh, and that is that uh, assault weapons, and we're going to use the 1994 federal assault weapons ban definition of what an assault weapon is. But uh, they make up uh, arguably slightly less than 19% of uh, gun use in uh, mass public shootings. Uh, That goes kind of against the public perception. Everyone thinks that every mass public shooting is done with an AR-15. And it's not, you know, uh, if only 19% are all types of assault weapons, then AR-15s are a subset of that. And you toss that down to the ether where people, you know, have never bothered to do any real research. And uh, their reaction to that is uh, tremendous. Uh, The other one that always gets attention is that um, there's this term generally called gun deaths. Uh, And people who are in favor of more gun control, uh, they tend to use that term a lot. And gun deaths encompasses everything. What most people don't know is that depending on the year, anywhere between 60 and 66% of people who catch a bullet 
um, were suicides. Uh, and so when you hear some big scary number, like there were 35,000 gun deaths last year, you have to take into account that over, you know, or close to 15,000 of those were people who decided to exit. Mm. Uh, and, you know, suicides as sad and as terrible as they are, are a different policy issue entirely than homicides. And that's gets us into that one big problem with any discussion about guns in society is what is the problem we're trying to fix and what will actually fix it? Excellent. Thank you for that answer. Because let me quickly say that the, I wrote just to let the listeners in, many of them are going to know this because they're my uh, subscribers on Substack. I wrote a short piece about um, some facts that are left out of the gun debate. And one of the things I only recently discovered that I put in this piece was the the fact that roughly six out of 10 um, gun-related deaths are suicides, which completely changes the equation. So I'm so glad that you touched on that. And I do want to hear more about the, the closing question you had there. And at some point, I do want to come back to you offering the um, a very specific definition for um, two two terms mass shooting and assault weapons but i would love to just kind of give you space here and let you follow up on how you ended that little bit there as to like what is the problem we are are uh, what what is it that we're really trying to do here and i'll just add to that and why is it that so much of the highly cited gun research is so flawed (laughs) <laughs> that second one could take five or six episodes, but no, I'll be able to condense it pretty, pretty well. I appreciate that. Uh, when you get right down to it, there there are just several factors in terms of people getting killed or injured with guns. Uh, either they kill themselves, somebody kills them, uh, there's a, or there's an accident. Uh, we can uh, ignore accidents more or less because the rate of firearm fatalities from accidents have been declining steadily over about three decades. And they're now down into what we would call the statistical noise realm. Uh, Mm. We should do what we can to avoid gun accidents, but in terms of broad policy and legislation, you know, it's almost a non-problem. So that basically leaves us suicides and homicides. Suicides when you dig through the data on who tries to commit suicide in which ways, and you look at this either domestically or internationally, one of the things we discover is that the availability of guns is not a determinant variable with suicide rates. Mm. We did a groundbreaking piece of international research. Uh, I think it was back in 2014. Um, And we chose to do it that way because the rate of gun ownership and the cultural variations from country to country are much broader than just looking at the United States in isolation. And what we found out was that the correlation between gun availability and suicides was down to about 0.02. That's R squared for any number nuts who are listening in, Um, which basically means no correlation whatsoever. And that got our interest right away. Uh, And so we dug in even further and we tried to see if there was some way we could explain this to the public. And what we did was we compared the United States to two other countries. We first compared it to the country that is most like the United States, culturally speaking. And then we compared the United States to whatever modern economy had the highest suicide rate in the world for that year. Now, my Canadian friends hate it when I say this, but, you know, Canadians and Americans are pretty much alike. We have the same Judeo-Christian background. Uh, We have the same basic religious tenets. Uh, We share culture all the time. The best one of the best rodeos you can find is in Calgary, not in Dallas. And in fact, there's only two differences really between Americans and Canadians. Canadians are politer and Americans prefer beer that has flavor. Now, that's one of my better standing jokes. But anyway, in the year of our study, the suicide rate between the two countries were almost identical, which you would expect from two countries that have very, very similar cultures and very similar attitudes to suicide. Problem is, Canadians own about one third the number of guns per capita as the United States. 
So right away, we see this huge disconnect. You know, guns were not a determinant variable there. So then we compared the United States to Lithuania, which at the time had a suicide rate that was more than three times that of the United States, 300%. But Lithuanians owned about 2% as many guns per capita as the United States. Uh, For the morbidly curious, uh, suicidal Canadians uh, opted for poison. Uh, That was their substitution of means. And suicidal Lithuanians hung themselves most of the time. So when you get rid of, you know, the gun fixation on the suicide problem, you then have to ask the question, well, how do we fix this problem? And you quickly understand that suicide, suicidal ideation is a mental health problem. We have had a multi-decade deinstitutionalization drive in the United States. We have one-third as many psychiatric beds today as we had in the early 1980s. Uh, mental health has become, here's a pocket full of pills, please you know, report back in a month. Um, we're not taking care of people who are on the fringe of suicide. And in America, because guns are available, when somebody's suicidal, they will more often pick up a gun than try something else. Well, actually, that's a lie. Most of the time, they try suffocation. Uh, guns are like number three down the list, if I remember correctly. Um but, you know, guns are absolutely certain uh, 99% of the time, whereas other means, you know, uh, somebody might find you before you're actually dead and get you uh, the help that you need. Wow. That, thank you for that. And you, as a side note, I'm not going to go into it here. You, you've inspired me to want to look up um, why the suicide rate is so high in Lithuania, but that's for a different podcast. That just got my curiosity going. But I appreciate that because – the knee-jerk response, as as you well know, and, and is that when someone says, even if they admit that sixty percent of the gun-related deaths are suicide, which I don't really ever hear in the soundbite debates, but even if they admit it, they'll then still say, "Well, it's because of the presence of guns." And that, that, as you just articulately stated, that is easily debunked. And again, pointing to a really profound societal issue as to why so many people are looking to take their own lives or at least threatening to take their own lives to, to as a cry for help. And again, that's another podcast in and of itself, but these are, this is something that would require that should be getting way more attention than we are over um, d- debating the exact meaning of a phrase like uh, assault weapons. So I, I appreciate that. So if we could segue into, so is is when I when I ask you what is the most why is the most cited gun research flawed? I don't mean that as a naive question because I know there are ideological reasons and why certain media outlets are going to focus on this or that. But from reading your book and from looking at your website, even if people, the impression I get from you is that even if people go to the accepted research, which I don't think most people do, but even if they do, a fair amount of that. Is, is not quality research anyway. So is, is there a reason, is that, an, again, ideological, or is this just poorly organized science? Uh, well, it, it's a little bit of both. Um, in the criminological fields, uh, you're not going to find many errors. And when you do, uh, they might be disagreements over which set of confounding variables to include in a multivariate analysis. And, you know, the real nitpicky stuff that will make most people's eyes cross. Um, but something happened about a decade, decade and a half ago, which uh, is truly phenomenal, both in terms of the pollution of science, but the ultimate skullduggery. And by the way, for anyone who's listening If you go to gunfacts.info up on the main menu, uh, you'll see a tab called research. And underneath there is another one that's labeled gun control research analysis. It's on that page that we list a number of studies that have gotten media attention that we downloaded and read and then found either data quality problems or methodology problems and that nobody should really take too seriously. So if anyone tosses a paper at you, check with us first. We may have already kind of gone into it. So what happened was a couple of decades ago, somebody realized that P-51 
people trust doctors. Uh, and with good reason, because, you know, you don't trust your doctor, you can die uh, or at least feel lousy all the time. So what they started to do, since there were some activists in the medical community, was that doctors started to commit what I call criminology malpractice. They started dabbling in the intersection of guns and violence and death and injury and stuff like that. Um, but they're not trained for that. And they relied on people who may have, you know, kind of done some odd, odd things uh, in order to try to drive a conclusion or at least not do research well enough that anyone should take it seriously. Um, But some of the research is so abysmal that I cannot conclude anything other than they were trying to come to an outcome that was politically viable. Now, a quick little segue here, because some people in New York will recognize this, uh, is that a lot of this really terrible research comes out of a place called uh, the Michael Bloomberg School of Public Health at John Hopkins. Mm. Um, Anyone who remembers Michael Bloomberg remembers that he is the deep pockets for the uh, gun control crowd. Uh, He basically finances everybody in that field. And so that a school of public health that carries his name is somehow generating a lion's share of the really terrible research, um, or or at least research that's driving towards one predetermined conclusion, you know, shouldn't surprise people. Agreed. I'll give you an example of how bad it gets. There is in statistical studies something called synthetic modeling. And when you have a limited amount of sketchy data, synthetic modeling is really a great tool because you have to invent data that doesn't exist. And you go about it by creating a model and making some assumptions and generating your data. Well, in the United States, we actually have a fairly robust uh, crime uh, and injury collection systems. The FBI's uniform crime statistics has been going uh, full speed since the 1940s. Centers for Disease Control collects uh, death and injury data on firearms. So we're not for a lack of data. And thus, synthetic modeling doesn't make sense. But in these uh, so-called studies created by doctors that were then reviewed in medical journals, not criminology journals, and that's the big giveaway right there, um, they would use synthetic modeling to create crime statistics that just never existed despite the fact that they do exist if you go and get them from the FBI. Hmm. Um, So that gives you an idea of how far people are willing to um, do statistical manipulation in order to come up with some sort of outcome that fits whatever their agenda may be. Fascinating. And I would, I, I don't want to derail us into a potentially completely different conversation, but I'm not surprised to learn that the medical community played a role in, in this uh, this messing around with and, and kind of fudging statistics because, it's, I mean, if not the past three years certainly showed some of that, but historically it's, it's, it's uh, something that they, that they seem adept at. And so I'm not surprised that when they dip their toe into the criminology pool that they, they uh, contaminated it because it seems like there's a lot of medical research that would fall into the same category that you described where they had a predetermined, um, conclusion they were looking for and basically went with confirmation bias to get to find to reach that same conclusion but i i definitely appreciate everything else you said and and i have a ton of notes in front of me and i almost but i want to kind of follow your lead i'm i'm from reading your book i i'll just throw some things out there i was fascinated to read your analysis about how the misuse of guns is more about intent and availability because because gun violence is more of like a big city thing than it is a gun issue. And um, maybe we could start there and then you could segue where you want in the sense that you're, I'm paraphrasing you, but you say something like violence is everywhere, but homicides with or without guns are mostly specific to larger cities. So to blame them on guns is just really um, irrational reasoning because it's more about 
to, to use the phrase, it's more about intent than availability. Sure, there are 393 million guns in the U.S., but we need to look at, for example, 71% of gunshot victims had previous arrest records and 64% had been convicted of a crime. And this is all I'm getting from your book. So can you elaborate on what you've written and studied and discovered as to what's not being discussed about the use of guns, where the use of guns happens, um, who is it that are using the guns, and who is it in general that tend to be the ones, uh, the victims of the guns? That is a very painful subject, but a very clean one, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, if visitors to the gunfacts.info website uh, look up a uh, report that has the word triangulation in it, uh, we were attempting to do something which was to come up with an accurate description of how many gun homicides are either street gang related or nexus. Now, what we did was we went to the National Gang Center, which is a federal government you know, project, uh, where they had demographics of your typical street gang member. And they break it down by age, by race, and by degree of urbanicity. Um, then we went to the CDC and we said, show us who is getting murdered with guns. And we mapped those two data sources. Then we got some other data sources to sanity check where we were ballparking. We looked up the number of, uh, gang members that we think exist in the United States. And we mapped that. And the short answer is if you are poor, living in a major metro center, uh, young and male and predominantly black, uh, the odds of you being shot dead are astronomical. Hmm. Uh, It is so far off the charts that when you look at uh, other races or people who are not living in major urban areas, you actually have to search for the color band on the chart a little bit just to make sure that you didn't miss something. Wow. Um, So that got us wondering, and that was the point of the triangulation. Uh, The FBI numbers on purpose uh, don't fully report uh, gang homicides because they can't. Um, So we said, okay, let's at least try to ballpark this based on national gang center, CDC, public records about estimates on number of gang members, what percentage of gun homicides in the United States are street gang related or nexus related would mean somebody purposefully killing somebody else due to gang activity. Nexus would include innocent bystanders who get gunned down during a drive-by things like that. We concluded that about 85% of U.S. gun homicides are street gang-related or nexus. That is an amazing number. And just to uh, do a call back to the suicide thing, ponder this for a little bit. If 60% of gun deaths are suicide and 85% of gun homicides are street gang-related, we have two very, very narrow areas of policy that we could look at that would address 91% of all gun deaths in the country. But the two things that we're not doing in this country are improving our mental health uh, structures to help the suicidal, and we're not targeting the super killers in the gangs who are responsible for most of the gang murders. Um, so the two things we could be doing, we're not doing. Wow. And I to add to that from your book, now you you could correct me if the numbers have changed since the book came out. I learned that 54% of counties in the United States typically have zero murders per year, while 2% of U.S. counties alone could account for as much as 21% of the murders, which is seems, as I read this, I was thinking, this seems pretty important when we're discussing um, issues like crime and issues like gun control, et cetera, because there, if, the, if more than half the country would 
never in their life encounter a homicide in their general geographic vicinity, then we need to, as you just said, the focus is completely skewed, is that it's in the wrong direction. So I I wasn't hesitant to go into this topic right away, but it's begging the question, from your perspective, what makes so many people so focused on on the weapon being used by someone, it turns out to be by someone killing themselves or by career criminals killing each other, as opposed to the societal issues that you just laid out. Like what it, it, you know, is it as simple as when people say they're coming for our guns or what, what, why this hyper-focus on firearms when you just eloquently laid out two major societal issues that, if, if addressed, would improve the quality of life for so many people? Well, for individuals, it would be either ideology or fear. And for the media, it would be ideology or fear, but for different reasons. Okay. Um, guns are scary. I, I mean, let's just put that on the table. Uh, I'm a natural born Southerner. I, I don't think I've, you know, ever known a day where people living next door to me didn't own a gun, but because of that, and because no one got shot where I lived, um, you know, I don't have any natural inbred fear of guns. Um, but somebody, you know, who grows up in an inner city neighborhood and they're seeing day in day out slaughter, they might perceive, you know, they might have a heightened fear of guns as a tool of violence. Can't blame them. Yeah. Uh, the media, uh, on the other hand, they also have ideology. Uh, we could go into that, uh, on a different angle, but, um, fear sells newspapers. It gets eyeballs on the TV screen Anything that they can hype up, uh, if it bleeds, it leads, uh, improves their bottom line. And so focusing on guns and gun violence instead of the underlying causes of violence really does help them in their mission. And in fact, it was the media that got me into this. When I was in college, I was watching the news one night and they were describing uh, the plague of. guns in America. And I thought, well, you know, in this town where I grew up, the only person who ever got shot in my first 21 years of life was a crazy drug addled woman who charged a police officer with a kitchen knife and he had to shoot her out of self-defense. So why was the, what was the media talking about that was so different from my town? Was my town different from the rest of America or was the media not reporting about my town. And that's what got me into 25 years of research was that the numbers just didn't add up. Wow. Yeah. The, the, I could, as a lifetime New Yorker, I could relate to the other side of that in the sense that it, when the neighborhood that I grew up in would qualify as a quote unquote bad neighborhood. And if somebody was assumed to have a gun on them. The the first assumption is that it was an illegal gun. And then the second assumption is that it wasn't for self-defense. And so there was definitely more of, to to use your term of an inbred fear, where you just be like, if you're a troublemaker, you're going to, you know how far to push in certain areas with certain people, because it's one thing to get into a fist fight with someone. It's another thing if you think this person is armed and more than willing to use it to commit a crime. And so I, um, my family, some of my family ended up in Texas. And when I would visit them, I would see some of the other side of it, where it was just like, it was completely um, normalized. And if someone used a phrase like the plague, the plague of guns, it would, um, it would be either laughable or just utterly confusing to them. It's like, what, what the hell are you talking about? So they're trying, the, the ideology of course is playing a major role, but the, the, uh, insanity of trying to to legislate over such completely different demographics and geographical areas is 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 obvious but apparently isn't obvious because as we just again learned over the past 3 years fear tactics were are quite effective and if you can get people to um to all agree that something is 
putting their life in danger, they will accept a wide range of restrictions on their own freedom to feel safe. Well, and you you make a valid point there. Fear is an extreme motivator. And one of the reasons politicians use fear as a tool is that people react instead of think. Fear moves you past critical thinking and into action because we have millions of years of evolution that that teaches us that when those hormones, fear hormones, jump in and activate the brain, you take action. Otherwise, that lion is going to eat you. Um, And so we have a problem in modern society is that the fear mongers, they've always existed, but they they now have mighty megaphones, uh, not just the traditional media, but now social media in terms of trying to scare people into doing things that if they took the time to actually think, ponder and research, they probably would not do. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, if you can get them past in like embedded, almost like stuck in that fight or flight mode, they will, they're very pliable to people with agendas. I, I agree. And um, your your work is, to me, the type of work that has always attracted me as a writer and now as a podcaster, where I want to hear the information, whether or not it's brand new to me. I, I, actually, I love when it's brand new. I, I've had my own ideo- ideologies in my life, and I like to think that I'm getting better at not being so susceptible to them. But all through my life, some of the great moments is when I have these epiphanies where someone introduces a reality me to me that is diametrically opposed to something that I thought that I was positive was true. And then it's like, oh my God, I've been wrong for so long, but it doesn't freak me out. It's like, it just makes me want to do what I've done in the past week with you, like read your book, go to your website and say, all right, let me catch up here because I have been behind behind here and kind of accepting some to some degree what is the uh, the general narrative partly because I'm in an urban area like New York, partly because a chunk of my life when I did activism, it would be what used to be traditionally called the left before it became woke. And so I, when when you're involved with those groups, the knee jerk response is to just demonize guns and to sort of look down your nose at at what you described as the Southern culture. And I'm not proud of saying that I slid into that for a while, but I'm working my way out of all possible hive minds as I can. And that's why I can't recommend your work enough to listeners because it's the type of reasonable, even just the way you talk is so you're so measured and you talk so slowly. Like I, I have this fast New York way of speaking and I'm listening to you and I'm like, yeah, you just come across as someone that's done their work and is ready now to share information and then hopefully trust people to make new decisions that are better informed. And well, um, good, good. Well, and that's been the, the goal of gun facts from the beginning. When, when anyone visits the site, they're going to see a little message right at the top and it says that we're neither pro gun nor anti gun. We're pro math and anti BS. And our goal has always been just to clear the garbage out of the discussion and try to make sure that people were relying on gold standard data without any you know, statistical manipulations presented in a way that anyone can understand and share, by the way, uh, and, uh, and to confront any fallacies, pro or anti-gun, that you may have encountered. Uh, and in, a quick aside on that, um, the copyright on the GunFacts website is extremely liberal, uh, all the charts, uh, if you click on them, you get a bigger version, which you're allowed to share, providing that you don't edit it. Um, and I encourage people who have an authentic interest in understanding what is and isn't real about guns and violence to share those charts uh, to their delight. Yes, absolutely. And I will also tell listeners that you provide um, like traditional footnotes where there are links and it brings it brings people and readers to your sources and enables them if they are that diligent and we should be that diligent to then follow up on what your work is because it's not there's nothing clickbaity there's nothing soundbite there's nothing 240 characters on Twitter ish about gun facts it's it's laying out information and 
I didn't get a feeling as I was reading it that it that it was strongly anti or not or pro gun. And I think you fulfilled that mission. And it just seemed like you were filling in these gaping holes in this discussion. And I want to get to two of them if we can squeeze in time here. Um, and I'm going to leave it to you to, to, in whatever order you want to um, discuss them. But two more topics that um, one is sort of the, the, the real knee-jerk news type of stories. It has to do with how many children are killed by guns and the statistics about children. And the other thing that absolutely blew my mind in terms of the, the statistics I learned from your book and your website is how often guns are used to prevent crime and for self-defense without resulting in fatalities. So if you could you could choose either one and go in any direction you want, but if you could talk about those topics, I feel like listeners would really, really benefit. Well, let's talk about children first. Um, because the definition of children, like a lot of definitions in the dictionary, have multiple meanings, and people pick and choose whichever meaning is convenient. Um, both the FBI uh, in a lot of their data, and this is informed a lot by common law and the way that we have historically categorized people, tends to have a cutoff at age 14 between what they call a child and a teenager. And, you know, we got different terms for those different age groups. We ought to use them. Mm -hmm. Um, The CDC does something kind of similar because people's behaviors change once they hit puberty, uh, especially if you're all consumed by hormone monsters. Um, And it's unsurprising then when you go to the National Gang Center and they make a couple of observations, one of which is that street gang recruitment begins at age 14. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, believe it or not, street gangs occasionally have an ethic or two and they really don't want to harm children. They don't want to recruit children. But the moment that you're a 14 year old male, uh, and you're beginning to get out of the house, your testosterone guides you to more dangerous behaviors in general, uh, you become prime pickings for street gangs. Okay. Uh, so it's no surprise that uh, you see almost zero, not absolutely zero, but real close to zero uh, homicide rates uh, going up to age 14. And then all of a sudden in the 15 to 19-year-old group, you're now in the uh, third highest bracket uh, for gun homicides. And then when you enter your 20 to 24 bracket, you are at the apex. You are in the Uh, most endangered group there is. So one of the things that's happening is that some advocacy groups are saying um, more children today die from guns than from automobile accidents. Well, what's their definition of children? Uh, In their book, it's anyone up to age 20. Um, For some of us nitpicky kind of people, a child is a child that means pre-puberty. That means we cut off the line at 13 or 14, depending on, you know, which definition you prefer. And when you look at just children, children, I mean, to the absolute definition of child, um, I believe firearms are something like number 13 down the list of uh, modes of death. It's about tied with uh, parasitic infections. Um, and you know, raise your hand if you have known a child who died from a parasitic infection. Um, so this is uh, misusing the language to misrepresent the situation. Uh, I and a few other people kept calling out these advocacy groups saying, are you including teenagers in this list? And they have recently morphed their uh, social media means and they now say, well, children and teenagers. And okay, thank you for the clarification. Okay. So that's number one. The good news is that um, very few children are murdered. Uh, the number of firearm accidents per capita, especially for children, has been uh, decreasing like a uh, rock over three decades. Children. Dying from guns, tragic as it is, 
doesn't even appear as a blip on the radar uh, in terms of statistics. Um, trying to remember the second question. Well, let, you, let, me, uh, let me quickly yeah. jump in there and then we'll get to the second question. I Because I have some numbers in front of me from gunfacts.info and um, one one interesting circle back to how we kind of opened up discussing suicides is I learned on your website that 26% of child firearm deaths are suicides. And I'm assuming if it's off gun facts that when you say child, you're talking about um, children. And so Again, that's not something to say, oh, what a relief, because it's it's heartbreaking that children are are at a point where the suicide rate is that high. But again, it's not it's no longer a quote unquote gun issue if we're now talking about more than a quarter of these deaths, which are so much lower than we are led to believe anyway, are from suicides and they shouldn't be lumped in with something like, for example, um, gang violence. So I just wanted to toss that in because I recently learned that from your site. The other thing as we get close to wrapping up is one of the big revelations I've gotten from your book and your site is how many people in the U.S. use guns to defend themselves yeah. against criminals and how how rarely that will turn into um, a violent or fatal situation. Yeah, and this, um, we got a couple of posts on this. Uh, one thing which we don't do is we don't rely on any single uh, study. Uh, people in the pro-gun camp for years and years and years have been citing just one study that was by a criminologist by the name of Gary Kleck. Uh, I've read Kleck's work. He didn't do anything wrong in terms of data sources or methodologies. So his numbers are sound. What we've done is, and there's a handy little chart about this uh, on the Gun Facts website, but we have 13 different studies that have been done by polling companies like Gallup, um, by criminologists, and by media sources. And the average number of annual defensive gun uses across these 13 different studies is just below 2 million times a year. Now, here's where the propagandists always mess it up. Because what they do is they look at the FBI data and they say, well, there are really only like a couple of hundred people killed in self-defense shootings last year. Well, there's more than one way to defend yourself using a gun. You don't actually have to kill the perpetrator in order for it to be a defensive gun use. Um, you start by telling the person you have a gun. You then show them that you have a gun. You then pull the gun out of the holster and, and point it at the ground and say, no, I'm serious. Then you point it at the person and say, I am really serious. And then you fire a gun into the ground or into the air or whiz one past his ear. And you say, did you not hear that I am serious? Then you could possibly shoot to wound but not kill. And then as a last resort, you actually kill the guy. That's why one of our pie charts gets a little confusing because all the numbers add up to more than 100% in terms of defensive gun uses. Mm -hmm. Because people will actually do two or three different modes of defensive gun use in a single episode of self-defense. But the bottom line is this, uh, about just about 2 million defensive gun uses a day. Firearm crimes, and this even includes things like liquor store robberies where no one fires the gun, they add up to a little bit more than 300,000 years. So we're looking at um, about six times as many defensive gun uses as there are criminal firearm uses. So the ratio in America uh, in terms of uh, people defending themselves versus people using guns for uh, whatever reason, illegal reason they have to use them against another person uh, is way out of whack in favor of the people defending themselves. Yeah. I, and I want to say, I think you um, misspoke quick in there. You said there are 2 million defensive gun uses per day. You meant per year, obviously. Per so year. I, yes. I want to make sure. Now, I have a couple of numbers in front of me from your site where out of, out of those times that um, a gun is used to defend, um, 
the reports are that as many as 83%, the attacker either threatened or used force first. And in 92%, the person using the gun to defend themselves only brandished it or fired a warning shot to scare off their attackers, which which goes against what the general thought of like the gun happy um, American is, and that the rate of defensive gun use is six times that of criminal gun use. So that the the legal gun owners in in this country statistically just completely backs them up saying that we own this for defensive use and we're not looking to kill anybody. We're just defending ourselves and the statistics back up those claims, which um, I can't say that last part I'm stunned about. I would have thought, I didn't think that people were being vigilantes and shooting people, but the, the sheer volume, of cases of defensive gun use was a revelation to me. I didn't realize it was that high. And I was very, very pleased to learn that they very rarely result in even a need to shoot the gun, never mind uh, a serious injury or fatality. So that, that I urge people to, to go to the site or get your book or both and dig into the numbers because it's, it's very, very enlightening. So um, before I say to you to give us like a wrapping up, um, take home message for the listeners. I promised that I would ask you um, for a short but accurate um, uh, definition of two terms, assault weapons and mass shootings, because those, those are the ones that get the headlines. What, what do, what do those terms really mean? Well, oh boy, we get into some iffy territory there. Let's start with assault weapons. Um, What the public needs to understand is that, uh, at least pre-2002, there was no technical definition of an assault weapon. And by technical, I mean the people who design, manufacture, sell guns, uh, the military, all the people who play with bang sticks, um, they did not ever have a classification that was called an assault weapon. There's something called an assault rifle, and that is a real military, fully automatic rock and roll machine gun. That's not anything you can pick up at the local gun store. So uh, one activist group way back in the day coined the term assault weapon, and they admitted this publicly. I have their webpage on my hard drive. Uh, They publicly admitted we're trying to create confusion. We Mm -hmm. want people to not understand the difference between an AR-15 and an M-16. Um, So, Assault weapons are strictly a legislative term. And um, before the the 1994 federal assault weapons ban was going to uh, sunset in 2004, one of the gun control advocacy groups created a quite handy little paper, uh, which said that there are four different generic models for defining assault weapons, which have resulted in 19 different classification schemes, depending on what state they were enacted in, that ban anywhere from 12 to several hundred different kind of guns, depending on what jurisdiction you're in. So assault weapon is just a legislative term, and it means whatever the politician who authored the bill thinks it means. Uh, And that's why we've got to be very, very careful and a little nitpicky in our conversations because, you know, it could mean one thing to one person and something completely different to somebody else. Um, In mass public shootings, and this is where more intentional uh, misuse of the language comes in, uh, has caused a lot of problems. Back in the 1990s, uh, criminologists settled and came to a consensus as to the term mass public shooting. We need all three words in there. And for them, they said it was where four or more people, not including the perpetrator, died in a public setting uh, during a shooting. And it was not tied to some other criminal activity, such as, you know, robbing a bank or something like that. Okay. However, everybody and his brother has now come up with their own definition of mass shooting. Notice that the word public is no longer in the middle there. Mm -hmm. And depending on whose definition you're looking at in one particular year, there could have been as few as four mass shootings or as many as 800 mass shootings. 
uh, depending on whose definition you use. And so we're a little bit anal retentive here at the Gun Facts Project, and we just stick to the original blessed consensus criminology definition of mass public shooting. Now, that doesn't mean we should ignore these other instances. They're worth studying. Of course. We, we just really need a different word because calling them mass shootings is now creating a lot of public confusion. One interesting thing, though, mass public shootings are public, and they take place in situations where innocent people are going to get gunned down. Let's take um, let's take the theater shooting in Aurora, Colorado. Okay, you go to a movie and some lunatic comes in with an AK forty seven, starts shooting people. It, you had no reason to believe that you were going to be at risk going to a movie theater. Mass shootings, this more generic and widespread term, doesn't have the word public in there. So this includes. Uh, events where somebody in a family goes berserk and kills the people in their family, where a a member of a street gang invades a home of a rival street gang and kills everyone in there. Uh, A lot of different situations where you have some control over whether you should or should not be there. And that's the key difference. Most people really are worried about mass public shootings because they don't want to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's why they don't go to the ATM in a sketchy part of town at 3 a.m. But with the others, you do have some control. You don't have to date somebody who's in a street gang. If you've got a relative who's a little off his nut, you avoid being in the same house with them. A lot of ways that you protect yourself when it's a private shooting as opposed to a public shooting. Absolutely. I, I, what I've noticed, living in New York, we still have here uh, traditional tabloid newspapers, the Daily News and the New York Post, and they, you know, they're still sold off newsstands, even in this, even in this digital age. And since I was a kid, they would be competing with each other on who could have the most sensationalist headline to get the most sales that day. And I've noticed over the past um, at least three, if not as much as seven years, that the casual use of mass shootings has just skyrocketed, even in cases where it'll be where a group of gang members storm the house of another group of gang members. And again, not downplaying the debts and the need to address this, like just as you said, but it to call it a mass shooting and then to create this environment where people are being subliminally just relentlessly uh, conditioned to think like, oh my God, mass shootings are up when that was something um, that was had nothing to do that, that was so as you phrase it, it was so easily avoidable for people who aren't part of those gangs as opposed to someone who was in the wrong place at the wrong time when somebody went crazy in a movie theater and nobody in their right mind would expect that to be the last thing they do but i have definitely noticed that mass shooting without the public in there is just been slipped in any time more than two or three people are shot regardless of the circumstances and and your clarification just kind of validates that to me. It's like, yeah, there's some, there's some chicanery here that they're they're using these terms with deliberate purpose to, to generate more of that fear matrix we were talking about. But all right, so we got to wrap up here. So I want to just give you the the last word here. Um, First of all, just to say thank you again for doing this and for clearly explaining um, all that you did and for all the work you do on your, your website. I'm sure lots of people are going to check it out after hearing you here. Um, But, what would be the, something if you wanted to say well, I have one more thing? I want to make sure I make this clear to listeners as to what feels important or why you do this work or what's the most uh, urgent take home message for people listening now. The most, uh, what's the right word? I think the most compelling thing is that culture matters. Uh, culture it helps you determine what you will and will not do in this world. And in my book, I have an absurdist comparison just to try to drive home the point. Uh, I went to the NRA's website, and I'm not an NRA member or fan or anything like that, but I was aware that they had annual conventions back before they got into their recent troubles. And according to them, their typical annual event was about 70,000 attendees. So you have 70,000 people who own guns, who know guns, who use guns, 
You shove them in a convention center, which is wall-to-wall guns because all the vendors are there showing their wares. You know that there's more than a few cases of ammo around. And the only people who die, die of boredom listening to two old codgers (laughs) talk about how to sight a rifle scope. Um, But if you were to take 70,000 garden variety street gang members and put them in that same convention center with those same guns and the same amount of ammo, you are going to need buckets and mops to clean up all the blood. What's the main difference between these two groups? And it really boils down to culture. Street gangs, well, inner cities in general, and there's a wonderful paper I'll recommend to anyone. It was uh, conducted in three neighborhoods in New York. It's called A Heaven of Our Own. Gives you some real insights into inner city uh, strife. Um, But the culture of street gangs and the culture of the neighborhoods that they live in facilitate violence. They facilitate killing people for trivial reasons. The rest of America doesn't want to do that. Whether you're a gun owner or not a gun owner, you really just don't want to kill people. In street gangs, killing people is part of the mission statement. Also in the book, I I mention an episode of a different podcast called Ear Hustle. It's uh, recorded inside of San Quentin Prison in California. And they were talking to one cat who came from South Central LA, which is like one of the three top hotspots in the country for homicides. And... um, they said, well, you're, you're here on a murder charge. What did you do? And he was a member of Gang X, we'll say. And Gang X had had this long-standing beef with Gang Y. And he was in a bodega, and this other fellow came in and, as a joke, said, how are you enjoying life inside of Gang Y? In other words, jokingly accusing this fellow of being a member of the rival gang. Okay. So he shot him, dead. Right there on the spot. Wow. That gives you an idea of the culture with inside of modern American street gangs. Kill people for the most trivial of offenses. And if there's collateral damage in the process, that's part of the job. Okay. I appreciate that because it's it, it points us, as you've been doing all along, this is to my eyes, it points us in new directions as to where we could be focusing all this energy and passion inter- and headlines um, in terms of improving life for the average American, as opposed to what we get misguided into thinking is a quote unquote plague. So I, I appreciate that. I appreciate your work, Guy. I appreciate you taking the time to talk and explaining all of this. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, Hopefully, listeners, check out your book, check out your website, bookmark it, and keep coming back to it because it's the type of uh, context needed in such a hot-button issue. So so thank you again. I appreciate you being here. Well, thank you, Mickey. It was a joy. I'll be back with some closing thoughts after one more word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here. I trust you're enjoying this episode, but I wanted to take a quick break to request that you seriously consider becoming a paid subscriber to Post Woke, because Post Woke is more than this podcast, which is a weekly podcast with crucial, important conversations with crucial and important guests. Post Woke is also a Substack on which I post on a daily basis. I'm talking about written posts. And I, first and foremost, I am a writer. I have 12 books out and I have been writing for many decades. And so you are getting quality content at least once a day, all for $5 a month. And no matter what you decide, you can become a free subscriber if you choose. I ask you to please share the link and spread the word. And while you're at it, Check the show notes for information on how to order the post-woke t-shirt. It is a completely cool, kick-ass shirt, and you could show the world what your favorite podcast and Substack is. So I thank you in advance for your support, 
again, I urge you to spread the word and let's get back to the show. As I wrap up, I just want to point out that in case it wasn't obvious, I'm not a gun person. Um, I've known people who've owned guns. I've known people who've owned legal guns and illegal guns. I've fired a gun in my life, but it's not been something that I know a whole lot about. However, coming out of traditional left-wing activism, as I did in the past, I had a very one-sided perspective on this issue. So this episode and the build-up, the research I did building up to it, um, highlights one of my favorite parts of life when you find out that something you believed, even strongly believed, um, was based on falsehoods and that there's a lot more information out there than you realized. Those epiphany moments are what I live for. And so I'm happy I had a chance to share it with all of you. I appreciate Guy coming on the show to share his expertise. And I hope it all serves as a reminder to keep your guard up. <laughs>